book of Acts, chapter 1, and I wonder who, has anybody read the book of Acts this week? Michelle O'Connor, thank you. I thought you might have been doing that, I could tell. Anybody else read the book of Acts the whole week? Hmm. Okay, I'm not going to leave the church because of it. Um, but uh, I guess we're not a cult, that's for sure. You're not following the leader. That's uh, one positive thing to get out of it. Uh, would anybody want to make a suggestion of what they think the theme of the book of Acts would be? If you had to put a title on it, good, don't put it up yet, Nikki. Uh, what title would you put on the book of Acts? Yes, Rob? Gospel and action. Very good. Ken? Okay, very good. Starting of a new era. Go ahead. <laughs> That's cheating. Uh, anybody else? Yes. All right. Amen. Well, anyway, the one that I chose, you can put it up now, Nick, if you could. Uh, the beat goes on. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse number 1, and I'll tell you why. Who's the author of the book, first of all? He says, in my... Who's my? Luke, right? Former book. What book would that be? The Gospel of Luke. Theophilus. Does anybody remember what that name means? That's right. Very good. A friend of God or a lover of God. Wonderful. We assume that it's an individual and likely a person who was in high office. It could, could stand for all the people of God as well. I'm inclined to not think that, and most wouldn't anyway, but it's okay for us to apply ourselves as a Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That would be in His Gospel account, of course. Until the day He was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. Verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Amen to that. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. The book of Acts. The Gospels, Jesus is introduced to us. We're told all about Him. The way the Gospel of Luke ends, Jesus leaves the earth. He goes away. Now what? Remember the two on the road to Damascus when they were walking uh, together, they were discouraged, they were disheartened by the fact that the so-called Messiah was crucified and had died. 
There was a rumor, though, that he had been risen from the dead. And then they finally meet him, and everything changes. He is alive. That's what makes Christianity so different than any other religion of the world. Buddha's dead. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. Siddhartha. All of these leaders of past history are dead. But Jesus is alive. That makes Christianity unique above them all. So, the Gospels introduce us to the Lord Jesus. I like to think of the book of Acts as the not book of the Bible. That part of the Bible that ties the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with the ongoing results of the church that succeeds Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's sort of like a runner running down the track who's on a team in a relay race, and he's passing the baton to the next person who receives it. Well, Jesus, in a sense, when He ascended up on high, He passed the baton of the Holy Spirit on, and now the church is the carrier of the Holy Spirit with whom they have been baptized. In the Gospels, I like to think of it this way. He that has begun a good work, the book of Acts, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord that Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. You can imagine what the apostles must have felt like after being with them three and a half solid years. Day and night it seemed. They, they spent time with Jesus. And he dies at an immature age of 33. He's leaving this world and about to. And he says, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. And we know who that comforter is. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, the book of Acts is a unique book. Um, it's been abused by some groups of Christians Many of them on the fringe of Christianity have taken advantage of portions of the book of Acts and have blown it up to places that have taken them in wrong theological directions and it has caused a lot of commotion. It's good for us to get this sentence down in our mind, a very very simple statement, that in the book of Acts, and not just the book of Acts, but particularly the book of Acts, what things we find to be descriptive are not necessarily prescriptive. Do you know what I mean? We find things in the book of Acts that are descriptive, but they are not necessarily prescriptive. Let me give you an example. In the early church, right after the Spirit came upon them and the believers were formed into one body of people, and it says that they were so close to one another that everybody basically emptied their pockets and shared whatever they had with everybody else. A real hyped-up communal living style. So much that people were selling their houses and taking the money and putting it into the common treasury so that the poor among them could be blessed and that there would be sort of an equality. Now, if you follow that model which you would find in certain circles in church history and even up to the present, it always results in a sort of a communistic, uh, unbiblical-like fashion that is not to be mimicked uh, by us. And they were erroneous in trying to make 
what was a description of the early church. Remember, the early church now is being launched. It's been fueled with the Holy Spirit. There's a newness and an excitement in the atmosphere. And they're all out for the Lord right now. Which we should be as well. Don't misunderstand me. But everything was being altered in their lives. It was a radical transformation. And in that example, I think we have proof that that is not something that is prescribed for the church. And we read later, even in the book of the Bible, where the Corinthians, for instance, says, Paul says, let every man eat in his own house. So the Bible wasn't prescribing what was being described in the book of Acts in, with expectations that we should be selling our house and giving it out to the common good of everybody else. That wouldn't be uh, necessary or it's not expected in the Bible. Now, in the book of Acts, we have three witnesses. And this is another way I think that you can caption the book of Acts. One is the Spirit's activity as a witness. Number two are the Scriptures. And number three are the saints. Those are the three witnesses that we have as well today. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells in each of us. As a believer, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We live in the Spirit. If we're not saved, what well, we can't do that. We're walking in the flesh. We're walking with a natural man, with an unchanged heart, without a new nature. But when we're born again, we have a new nature. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us who's an empowerment to us to live for the Lord, to enjoy the things of God, and to be able to share the Gospel. Like Jesus says, out of their innermost pot shall flow rivers of living water. And that's what we should be like. We should be like a fountain flowing up for others to see. Like it says about the early apostles, it says, others took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. That's how we should be characterized by people who observe us. Wow, you've been with Jesus. He's done a remarkable work in your life. Look at how you are. To God be the glory. The other witness, and I'll give you an example. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter's preaching, he says, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. So Peter is appealing to the Scriptures and saying, To him the Scriptures point. Therefore, we can utilize the Scriptures as a witness. When Paul went into the synagogue, and that were, those were the outposts that Paul often found to be the places where he would launch the Gospel. And what would he do? He would open up the Scriptures and prove to them out of the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then the last witness is the saints, you and I. You're a saint if you're born again. You haven't died. You don't have to be canonized. you immediately canonized, if I could put it that way. You are saved by the grace of God. You are, you are sanctified by the Lord. That's what a saint is. Someone who's made holy. And as soon as you get saved, you're a saint. Though we may not live always saintly, and maybe we have some things that we need to check ourselves about, but the Bible classifies as saints, and we are witnesses. Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonians, says, I don't have to say anything to others about you. You're a witness for yourself. How that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. How you're waiting for the Son from heaven. And from you the gospel is being preached and your faith is being known abroad. 
So those were the qualifications or the characteristics of a child of God. Those were the witnesses for the Lord. Some of the practical points in the book of Acts is how to detect false professions of faith. Uh, how do we preach the gospel? What do we say? What content do we use when we proclaim not necessarily in the pulpit, but maybe in a Sunday school class. Maybe in a family setting where you're with unconverted family members. What do you say? What's vital in your communications that can result in a person's understanding and hopeful salvation in the Lord? Who can or should be baptized? Uh, we have conversions. Water baptisms, the breaking of bread, reception into the church, and the conduct of Christians. If you were to think of a key verse in Acts, can anybody quote any verse out of Acts that is an important verse? Any verse. And where is that found, sister? Very good. Verse 30 and 31. Okay, good. That's, I think, a, a classic verse. Anybody else? Acts 4.12, maybe. I know you all know this one. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 13.48, I love this verse, although I wouldn't say that it's a very popular one, but it should be. It says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Or Acts 17.30, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. We have reference to the Holy Spirit raising up elders, and that's how persons become elders, is by the Holy Spirit raising them up. Uh, Agrippa says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I think that's an important one. Or in a short time, you think you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? Um, in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit. Anyway, you can see that the book of Acts is a vital book, as are so many of the books and all of the books of the Bible for that matter. But this is a very, I think, key book. And I must say, this is, or Hebrews is, my favorite book in all of the Bible. Uh, I love both of them immensely. The book of Acts is the history of the church. Let me put it this way. The book of Acts is to the history of the church what the New Testament is to the Old Testament. Let me explain that. Let me say it again. The book of Acts is to the history of the church what the New Testament is to the Old Testament. There are things that are continued from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? And there are things that are discontinued. And I want to get to the point to show you that there are things in Acts that are continued in things in the book of the Acts that are discontinued. Let me start first to try to prove my point, how that uh, the Old and the New Testament relate and how there is a discontinuity from the Old to the New, for instance. In the Old Testament, we have sacrifice that are practiced. In the New Testament, they are terminated. In the Old Testament, we have dietary rules are enforced in the New Testament, dietary rules are not observed. In the, New Test in the Old Testament, circumcision was required. In the New Testament, it's inconsequential. In the Old Testament, Sabbath-keeping was mandated. In the New Test Testament, Sabbath-keeping is not enforced. 
in the Old Testament, priests mediated for the people. In the New Testament, all redeemed people are priests unto the Lord. In the Old Testament, the temple was the only place of worship. In the New Testament, it is no longer the place of worship. We can at least say that there is, in the book of Acts, examples of that kind of thing, where things discontinue. Some things are terminated, other things are petering out, and other things do not carry on subsequently to the book of Acts. And let me try to give you some examples of discontinuity. Because some people can read the book of Acts, and some churches would call themselves, for instance, the full gospel church. And what they mean by that is they're, they're going to be just like the churches were or the church was in the first century in the apostolic period. That sounds very commendable, but as we survey a little bit of the post-apostolic period, which you and I are in, the apostles are all dead, they died in the first century, the church continued to go on, and you and I are part of it now in the 21st century. What do we see in the book of Acts that would be, we say, discontinued today? And you may not agree with all of these, but I think you'll at least say that they're certainly not prevalent in our time. We have an example in the book of Acts where a woman named Tabitha, also called Dorcas, was raised from the dead. We have examples in the book of Acts where it says that Peter's shadow, when it went over the people that were ill, they were instantly healed. We have examples that from the body of Paul, handkerchiefs that were sent to various people individually, they were healed. We have when Paul goes to the island of Melita in Acts chapter 28, it says that many of the islanders came to Paul to be healed. Um, we have Peter and John um, are able to say to a, to a man that was lame for years who was sat at the gate called Beautiful, and they looked steadfastly on him. He was asking for some money as a poor person. And what did Peter and John say? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately he rose up, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, those, you must admit, are not common events that occur in the church. Either in the early church, post post first century church or in the current day. Now you might say, well what about the what about the Benny Hens and what about the miracle workers that we read we see on television? You'll notice that in all of these cases it's always done in a highly charged atmosphere. Where there's a hype, there's an expectation, and I don't want to go into this. I've gone personally to the Benny Hinn Crusades. Uh, we we did a little kind of protesting and uh, uh, we had a couple of signs uh, at Benny Hinn's uh, one of them that said don't give a penny to Benny Uh, the other one was Benny stop hindering the truth Uh, it got some attention and actually made the newspaper Uh, it sounds rather uh, arrogant but I did we did want to get attention we made up some from pamphlets and, and the title of it was Benny Hinn the Prophet with a white suit on the front cover. You open it up and it has all of his false prophecies that never came to pass. One of them was that Jesus was supposed to show up on stage, on camera, that it would be witnessed to in the following year. 
and also by a certain year, all homosexuals of America would, would die. Uh, just crazy things like that that never happened. Who would want to listen to somebody like that and give any kind of credence to that? It's amazing that people follow that, people like that, claim that they read the Bible or are following the Bible, and yet the Bible is clear about such people. Okay, how about in the book of Acts, something that comes off of the pages too as well, is the angelic appearances. Peter's taken out of prison twice. In chapter 5, all the apostles are released from prison. It says, the angels opened the doors of the prison to release the apostles. Angel did that. In the 12th chapter, the same thing. Actually, Peter was sleeping on the night of his execution. I don't know if I'd fall asleep if I knew I was going to be executed in the morning. But Peter somehow was able to fall asleep. I wonder if he thought, wait a minute, I'm not going to die this way. Jesus told me how I'm going to die, right? He said that when you're old, and he's still young now, because the Lord had said that not long before that, so that might have been a reason why Peter wasn't worried about what was going to happen the next morning. I don't know, just a thought. You can think about it. But anyway, Peter falls asleep, and the angel slaps him up and wakes him up and says, Peter, arise and go, follow me. And, and the gates open on their own. And he's following the angel, and he goes out. And then he goes to the house, knocks on the door. Even the church that was praying for him, like, whoa. What was his name? Rhoda, right? Who goes to the door. And Peter's there knocking at the door, talking to her, and she, and she shuts the door, runs back in and says, uh, um, I think I might have seen Peter, uh, but uh, how's that possible? Well, wait a minute. We were praying for him. Don't you expect answers to your prayers? Um, and, and then they bid her to go back, and sure enough, it wasn't the Spirit. That's what she thought, or they thought that it's his spirit. It was really him. Anyway, miracles are on on the on a high in the book of of boat in the book of Acts. Um, uh, the Lord smote Herod, and he was eaten of worms. Um, on ship, on ship, Paul said, "Fear not, you must all be brought to Rome." He had a guarantee, assurance from the Lord communicating with him that those that were on board with him heading to Rome, that they were all going to get there safely. We have examples in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit speaks audibly. And I don't know about you, but I'm very, very, very reluctant when somebody tells me that they heard an audible voice of the Lord. Uh, Someone asked me yesterday when we were doing some evangelism, what kind of church are you? And I said, well, we're kind of like a Baptist church. He said, well, I'm Pentecostal. And he was a drug addict, unfortunately, and and, and really... um, I actually was hoping he was going to be here. His name is Ricardo. Uh, we've been praying for him. Uh, but he, he had reservations because we weren't Pentecostal. And uh, uh, if he was here, I suppose he would pretty, be pretty upset if, if I stated that I think examples that we have today of the Holy Spirit audibly speaking to people, it's questionable. I, 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 won't, I don't want to rule it all altogether out, but... On the other hand, I think we know by experience and by reading church history uh, that this is rather foreign to uh, everyday experiences. For instance, it, the Holy Spirit said it in the church, separate me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work that I'm calling them to go to. The Spirit audibly spoke publicly so that multi- numbers of people could have heard that. And then they took Saul, who later is called Paul, and Barnabas. They prayed over them, commended them to the work of the Lord. 
um, chapter 8, Philip, the Spirit said to him, join yourself to the chariot. And that's where he met the Ethiopian eunuch. It says in the 16th chapter, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to a certain area. And I, that one I, I, would, I would lighten up a little bit on because I do hope and trust that we do lean on the Spirit and look to the Spirit for guidance and wisdom to know how to discern what is of the Spirit if indeed the Spirit is leading or even maybe holding us back from something. In the book of Acts, you have examples of predictive prophecies. Agabus who's highlighted, claimed that a, said that a famine was coming in chapter 11, and sure enough, a famine came. Uh, also, he says in chapter 21 uh, uh, about Paul, that he would be imprisoned, that, uh, uh, and he takes the girdle and he, and he binds it, and he says, this, whoever, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul. You're going to be bound when you go to Jerusalem. Absolutely certain the Holy Spirit spoke. And the, the book of Acts doesn't challenge that Agabus is gifted and, and led by the Spirit to say these kinds of things. The Spirit caught away Philip in Acts chapter 8 after he witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch, right? It says, and the Spirit caught him away. We have accounts in the book of Acts chapter 8 and chapter 19 where the Spirit is delayed in filling a person. Uh, in, Acts, in Ephesians 1.13 it says, After that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The sealing of the Spirit happens momentarily. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you, get, you, you receive the seal of the Holy Spirit. Who will be with us until the day of our final full redemption. Sealed until the day of redemption. When does that sealing or that filling occur? The moment you believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're filled with the Spirit or the indwelling of the Spirit. We have continual fillings of the Spirit. So in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, we have those two examples. And I can't get into all of these instances, but you might say, well, and this again is something that modernists would use uh, in the event, in uh, Pentecostal circles to say, they could even say to you as a believer, and maybe one of you here, I've had it asked to me, have you received the Holy Spirit? Well, I can't be called a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says, if anyone have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. You can't even be classified as a child of God or one of the Lord unless you have the Holy Spirit. Well, they don't mean that. They mean, do you have that extra unction, that second baptism of the Holy Spirit and they would point to chapter 8 and chapter 19 as examples but we must always keep in mind that the, the church is just being launched it, it's, it's virgin territory this is all new there are, there are reasons why and I'll just give you quickly the book of uh, chapter 8 rather when, when, when uh, the gospel reaches them and they hear that back in Jerusalem that the Samaritans Samaritans were a dirty bunch to the Jews down in Judea. So, but Peter and John, when it came to the ears of the church, they decided to go up and they discovered they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. Why would that be? Because the apostles were dubious about the sanctification of Gentiles or Samaritans for that matter, that they could have the Holy Spirit. They knew at least, the apostles, that one, when one had the, the Holy Spirit as a gift from God, that they were set apart, they were sanctified, they were instantly God's 
property. And so, the Jews and the apostolic Jews, the apostles, were reserved about receiving Samaritans or Gentiles into their community. But when Peter and John goes up, they lay hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Why? So that they could see that the Holy Spirit was given. Why do I say see? Because, remember, Simon the sorcerer saw that the gift of the Holy Spirit was given by the laying on of the hands and he wanted to have that same gift. And I'll mention that in a little bit later. And then in 19th chapter 2, they only knew John's baptism. They didn't know the full gospel. There's another reason why they didn't yet receive the Holy Spirit. And in the 10th chapter, when Cornelius and his family hear the gospel and believe, they are filled with the Spirit and they speak in tongues, other languages. What purpose there? They're Gentiles. It was vital for Peter who was again a bigoted, still has that bigotry about Gentiles. Remember when God let down the fourth, uh, the sheep with all the four-footed animals? Peter, the Lord says, rise and eat, rise and eat. Three times Peter says, not so Lord, not so Lord, not so Lord. What I have called common or, 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 or uh, clean, don't you call uncommon. And he rebukes Peter. And then Peter was trying to figure it out. And then he realizes because a knock comes to the door, it's a Gentile saying, Cornelius had a vision of an angel coming to him saying, go and ask for Simon Peter to come and bring you good news. And so Peter brings with him other Jewish Jewish disciples with him so that they could see that they had received the Holy Spirit. That was the assurance that they became believers. So when they do... And Peter says, let's baptize them. And he says, how can we forbid water to those that have received the Holy Spirit like as we have? So those other Jews, believing Jews, Christian Jews that came up with Peter, saw that they had the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they would affirm, yes indeed, they could be baptized like we were as well in water. And keep in mind that the Spirit was received before water baptism. Sometimes, Peter, sometimes people attach to baptism what the New Testament doesn't. There's no magic in water or in the act of water baptizing. It doesn't change you. It doesn't make you a Christian inwardly. It doesn't bring a new life. It doesn't bring you into the church or into the kingdom. It's only an outward profession of an inward reality. You're telling without what's going on within by saying, I have died, I am buried, and I am risen with the Lord Jesus Christ. There in the book of Acts also visions. Ananias uh, was told about Paul in a vision to go to him to the street called Straight. And you'll see this individual who was at that time known as Saul of Tarsus. Peter, uh, I mentioned, saw in a vision the sheet that was let down with all these animals. Uh, Paul in Acts 16 In prayer, the Lord uh, speaks to him and says, Come over and help us. As if it's the Philippians crying out, Come over and help us. And he acted on that. Because he says, Knowing assuredly that the Lord had called us for to go to that place. And they left. Another example of what we might consider to be discontinuity or at least an unlikelihood. Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches, how many get saved? Huh? 3,000 at one time. 
Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Then when we turn over to the next chapter and into the fourth chapter, in another like Pentecostal type of environment where Peter is standing up again, filled with the Spirit, trying to preach Christ and Him crucified, it says many believed in the nu- and 5,000 were added. Now, I don't know if that's 5,000 more or, the, or to what or was already 3,000, 2,000 more were added. But either way you want to look at it, it was definitely mass conversions that were taking place in the first century. We have judgments on people that have most severe Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to God, the Holy Spirit, saying that they had donated so much to the common pool of money, when in reality they kept back some of it. There was nothing wrong with keeping back some, but they claimed that they had given it all. And what happens to them? Each of them are slain by the Lord, brought judgment on them. And as a result, it says great fear came upon the church because of that. Severe judgments. Um, We have examples of the spirits of demons. Uh, There were seven sons of Sceva. They were exorcists. They were trying to exorcise demons out of a man. And while they're doing it, the demon speaks and says, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who are you? And suddenly the spirit went on that individual exorcist who was a Jewish man, one of the sons of Sceva, and it says it, it overpowered him and drove him out of the house. That's in chapter 19. Examples, not common everyday things that happen in the church. Uh, Paul, when he was preaching, was asked to come and speak to the deputy named um, Sergius Paulus. And there was a, a Jew again uh, who was trying to interfere. Uh, his name was Elamis, the sorcerer. I believe he was Jewish. I can't remember off the top of my head. But as he was trying to interfere, Paul says to him, May blindness come upon you. And suddenly he was blinded immediately. Again, amazing events. Audible voices various times. Uh, how about Paul's conversion? He was struck down. He hit the ground and a great light shined around about him and he heard a voice. And I had mentioned the speaking in tongues in chapters well, 2, 10, 19, uh, etc. And another thing is we have instant, immediate baptism. Now, this is a tricky one. I've heard good men, good pastors and, and, and teachers who think that when a person makes a profession of faith that they immediately should be saved. Maybe even that very day or that night. Um, I must say... I wish I had baptized less people than I have baptized. And I say that because I know so many of them have turned out to be false professors in my own children for that matter. So I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. And what I do though, and I think we can all as parents feel a little comforted too, is when... What example am I thinking of in the book of Acts where someone was baptized and he wasn't one of the Lord's? And... And Peter was involved with his baptism. You know who I'm thinking of? Simon the sorcerer, remember? He's the one that said, I want to have the same gift that you, you men have, because I saw that by laying on hands the gift was given. And what does it say about Peter? looked at him, he says, I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness 
in the bond of iniquity, your money perished with you. So, it says he believed earlier when Philip was preaching, not Peter rather, when Philip was, well yeah, Philip started the gospel in Samaria. When he was preaching, it says that, and it says about the sorcery. He believed also, that's a clue, he was following the crowd and followed Philip. So, that could be a hint, but it wasn't detected at the moment. It was later detected by the perception that Peter had, and I wish that we had perception before we baptized people. And that's why I try to be a little more scrutinizing when a candidate seeks to be baptized. If you're saved, pray. If you're a weak Christian and you're wanting to be baptized, praise the Lord. It's not that you have to reach a certain level of spirituality to qualify for water baptism, but you've got to have died with Christ. You've got to have been born again from the Spirit of God that comes from above. Then you're entitled to water baptism. But in the, in the book of Acts, we see that baptism occurred instantly. And not just that, there was an immediate incorporation into the church. You became instantly, the word member is sort of a, more of a modern word to describe commitment to one another, which I think is important for us to understand that as well. But it seems as if the believers just instantly were amalgamated into one people. And that's, that's understandable because the, dram, dram, the dramatic change was, uh, was powerful and, uh, just think of what it cost a Jew to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was no easy thing to say. Say it in America, big deal. We all believe in Jesus here in America, right? Or at least have been up to maybe recent time. Now you get a lot of nuns out there. They don't believe anything. But immediate baptism and immediate incorporation into the church. Again, these are descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. We have infallible discernments by Paul, for instance, uh, with the, the, crippled in, of, uh, the crippled man in Lystra in chapter uh, 14. It says, Paul perceived that he had faith to be healed. He perce- I can't see your faith. Can you see anybody's faith? I mean, I can maybe sense that the Lord is working there, but the perception that Paul had to be able to determine that was something extraordinary. Same thing with Peter, I already mentioned. He perceived that Simon was in the gall of bitterness. I hesitate with some people, some I don't, but some I would hesitate to say, you're in the gall of bitterness, you're in the bond of iniquity, you're bound to go to hell, you're a damned person. If I was an apostle in the the book of Acts, I might have that kind of discernment. So those are some of the things that if you don't at least see that they have discontinued, you can at least see that they have sort of petered out. And we don't see them commonly occurring in our day. And I'm very much aware of the whole Pentecostal uh, holiness movement that began in the, in the 19th century. I have studied that at length and spoken on it. So uh, it, that's not going to be new to me in case you, you differ with me. Uh, and that's all right if you do anyway. But uh, we have examples uh, of continuity. And, and what can we learn from the book of Acts? It is the history of the early church. I'd like to know after Jesus rose from the dead. And, and that's a great thing for us to know that Jesus is alive. He's still as alive today as He was in the first century. 
And that's a, a, a wonderful motivation to give the gospel to people and to tell somebody, whosoever shall call... I tell people, call on the name of the Lord Jesus. You talk to God. You speak to Him. You ask Him to save you, to convert you, to bring to you new life. I'm telling them to talk to somebody who's alive. I'm not talking to them about a, doc, a, a doctrine. I'm talking to them about a person who's alive who is the great evangelist that they can call upon. We have the Ethiopian eunuch. It says that, the, that Philip joined himself to the chariot, and it says, as he was reading the book of Isaiah, he took that portion, it says, and he preached Christ unto him. That's what we do, brothers and sisters. We want to preach Christ. It's not a denomination. It's not a church. This is no cult. We're preaching Christ and Him crucified. Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the Savior, not us. We can only point people to Him. And Philip, beginning at that Scripture, preached Christ. That's what he did. He used the Word and he expounded it and said, This is Christ. The Philippian jailer, What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus you'll be saved. Cornelius and his household, they had feared the Lord. They called for Peter to come in. And Peter perceived that God is calling out of nations people who fear Him to come to saving faith. And while He says to them, to Him, that is to Jesus, give all the prophets witness that whoever believes in Him shall receive remission of sins Verse 43, the next verse says, While Peter yet spake these things, the Holy Spirit fell on them which heard the word. That is a classic example of how conversion takes place. Even you right now, you can be saved by just believing. I was talking to somebody yesterday and he was trying to talk about how important it is. And he's not, he's not saved, but he's talking about how, well, you've got to change your life. I said, well, wait a minute. Do you change your life before you become a, a, a saved person? Or do you come as you are and then your life gets changed after you become a Christian? He had to admit that that's what happened. I tried to change before I got saved and it was an uphill battle. I knew what the Bible taught about morality and about ethics and uh, ethical things and, and good living and uh, appropriate behavior. I couldn't live like that because I had a sinful nature that was deceitful. I was a liar. I was a cheat. But God had mercy and opened my heart and changed my whole spirit because of the power of the gospel. If I continued on my road thinking I can save myself by good works and then maybe qualify for God's salvation, I was going down a wrong path. And if that's what you're thinking, just as the hymn writer says, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Lydia, listen to Paul's report, and it says, The Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to Paul's message. Hallelujah. Who opens hearts? You don't open your own heart. Your own heart is closed. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, etc. But when the Lord opens your heart to come in, for Christ to come into your life, although Revelation 3.20 really has to do with a believer letting the Lord come into their lives for more communion and fellowship, but even if you want to apply it to an un unconverted it has to be the Lord like with Lydia opening up the heart for the Lord to come in and be a real vital uh, indweller of that person's life we have in 
chapter 18, it says, Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Hearing believed. That's what we're doing. That's the continuity. The gospel continues, and we'll get into that in a little bit. In chapter 18, verse 9, 10, 11, Paul, the Lord said to Paul, Don't be afraid, but speak. Hold not your peace. For I am with thee, and no one will set on thee to hurt thee, for I have yet much people in this city. What an encouragement that is for us. That's why we keep sowing. We keep going to the nursing's home. Keep going to Brookdale. Keep going down the main street. Keep sowing the seed, because you never know what a day will bring forth. And I believe there are two people here that we've met on Main Street. Praise God. Uh, Brandon and, and Milka have been both. We've met them. Praise the Lord. And they're here today. So you never know what a day will bring forth. Cast thy bread upon the waters, and thou shalt find it after many days. Now, the Bible does say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus said in the Gospels, I will build my church. When did the church start getting built? Not in his earthly lifetime, although he was still sowing the good seed and people were coming to know him and believe in him for sure, but... When he says, I will build my church, it seems very evident in the book of Acts that that's when the building really started getting erected. In Acts chapter 2, many, we said 3,000 were saved and more become believers and are added. And how does that happen? Acts 2.47 says, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. When the Lord saves you and adds you, hallelujah, your name is written in the book of life. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You are in the foundation of God. The Lord knows you. You are His for time and eternity. That's the work of the Lord. We can sow and we can maybe try to build a church. And I I have a lot of hesitations too in the way which a lot of sometimes churches go about church building or planting churches. It almost comes a marketing technique that's kind of, I back off from. It's almost like we can do it. We've got the strategy. And I'm not saying you don't use strategy. You obviously have to have some wisdom in what, how you go about preaching the gospel and, 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 and sending out the good news. But for those who seem to think that it can be just accomplished by some method of their own um, that might be mimicking that that's done in society, in the business world, I think is... You're going to build a church that's going to be built not on the rock, but on a shamrock, and it's not going to stand. Now, in Acts chapter 2, and this is what I want to close with, and I probably should have a whole other sermon on this, but Peter quotes, after the Holy Spirit is evident, and he's speaking through the apostles the wonderful works of God, Peter stands up filled with the Holy Spirit, And he quotes this verse and he says about David, he being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Peter is saying that Jesus has risen from the dead and he is taking the place of me, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's on the right hand of God, majestically enthroned there. 
And that's why what's taking place is due to Him. And if you believe on Him, that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, if you believe that God has made Him to be Lord, that word Lord is very much of a, a synonym to the word King, Master, above all. If you're willing to believe on Him as Lord in Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed Sent One, you can be saved. In Acts chapter 15, it says about, in, from the book of, quotation from the book of Amos, Amos, I will build again the tabernacle of David which is fallen down. So we have Jesus as the King of David, the King David, sitting on the throne of David. We have in the 15th chapter, quotation from the Old Testament applied to the New, that Jesus is the King David building the tabernacle of David. This is awesome stuff, brothers and sisters. How did Jesus begin? We read earlier in the first couple of verses. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was going to was going to blossom. It was going to come into, into visibility with people becoming converted. So the book of Acts has to do with the enlargement of the kingdom. Why does it get enlarged? Remember in the fifth chapter when the apostles were taken aside and uh, they, they were before a rabbinic community and, 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 and there's a threat to the lives of the apostles and Gamaliel, the wisest of the, of the rabbis, says, hold on. He says, if this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. And the example that was given was two men, Judas and Thutis. These were former uh, leaders in the past who had, who had gathered a bunch of disciples around them in a, in a movement, a revolt or whatever, or, or an organization of people were in action. And what happened? Those two individuals, the leaders, Judas and Thutis died. The whole movement died out. And Gamaliel is saying, and he's speaking to the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, and if he's not alive, don't worry about it. No big deal. This whole thing is going to die out. But if this work continues, then you're going to know that this is a counsel of God. That this is, this is of God. And who are we? To stand between God and the work that He's performing. Who can stand before Him? And that Gamaliel gives such wise wisdom. That's how the kingdom is spread. Here in the book of Acts we have, I already said Jesus speaking about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. When Philip went to Samaria, it says they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God. Chapter 20, 25, Paul summarizes his ministry and says, I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. In the 28th chapter, he expounds, this is Paul again, expounded and testified the kingdom of God. In the very last verse says about Paul, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the beat goes on. They thought that the King of Nazareth, the King, King Jesus of Nazareth, when he, his last heartbeat stopped at, at the cross, that that was the end. The end of him, the end of this movement. But the beat goes on. Because Christ is risen from the dead. He's seated on the throne of David and He's building the kingdom of God. And you know what? One thing, and I want to close with this, what you don't find in the book of Acts, you don't find any altar calls. Where do you find that? People being called up to make a, to make a statement of faith or to say a prayer? You don't find that. But what you do find is 
Preachers calling people to repentance. I like to say, I believe in the altar call. I'll call you to the altar of Calvary and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you believe, you can have everlasting life the moment you believe. That is the Gospel. The altar call should be called the Apocrypha call. Because the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Why do I need to add something to it when the Gospel is what God uses to convert people and to bring them under conviction of sins and turning from their way, wicked ways and turning to the Lord, beholding the Lamb, coming stripped, naked, bankrupt, broke, and just saying, Lord, take my life and let it be. Save me, Lord. Wash me white as snow. And if you're not saved, might you look to the Lord even now? Maybe you've been water baptized as well. And you're like a Simon that there's no power in your life. You don't have the Lord and you know it, but you don't want anyone else to. You've been falsely baptized. And I'll take some credit for the wrongness of baptizing you or whoever. Or just innocent, both of us, we thought you were and I thought you were. But God knows and you know your heart that you really don't belong to the Lord. And I know sometimes Christians can go through struggles and they, they, they're doing things that they shouldn't be. And, and then they're wondering, I don't think I'm saved. And they give up their profession. But they really are, but they haven't been able to deal with the trials and the struggles of their life. They're, they're giving in too easily and they're not fighting the good fight. They're not seeking counsel. They're not asking for prayer. They're not teaming up with anybody who can come alongside and pray with them and support them and try to lift them up and encourage them. Anyway, read the book of Acts, brothers and sisters. The beat goes on. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for our Lord Jesus and for uh, His glorious resurrection and ascension. And Lord Jesus, as You uh, are told of by the Gospel of Mark, that it says the Lord continued working with them. Lord, thank You that Your work doesn't stop in the first century, second, third. It continues until You come, Lord. We can continue baptizing, breaking bread, preaching the Gospel, having people added to the local church. Lord, we thank You that we can continue in and on with the book of Acts, with the acts of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Truly, Lord Jesus, You did say that You are the builder and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And though, Lord, we see so much in society that seems to hinder the going forth of the Gospel, we pray, Lord, that we may have that confidence that You're not silent, You're not ignorant of these things, Lord, but You're continuing to work in Your mighty ways, maybe behind uh, curtains and behind closed doors. But, Lord, we trust You. And, and Lord, even this morning, if someone isn't saved and they have professed to be saved we ask Lord that you would awaken them and bring them to yourself by opening their heart and giving them faith to believe on you we pray these things in Jesus worthy name Amen